You know, making the right decision. Sometimes when you do it, you get called snitch, scumbag, whistleblower. All these words, they they come into like, you know, informant, you know, just stupid things. People don't, the people who have done the wrong always look at you as like you're a scumbag. I've been in that boat and I didn't even realize Chip was in that same boat. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is near to me. Something that I did, and it's something that affected my life. What I did was I blew the whistle, and that is the only reason, the only reason I am on a podcast right now, the only reason I'm doing a podcast, only reason I wrote books, the only reason I did a lot of things. It changed the trajectory of my life. It changed almost everything about my professional life. I had to readjust almost everything in my life because I decided one day to do the right thing. The same thing happened to Chip. Chip, 30 years in law enforcement, hell of a background, educated, did a lot of different things within the department. But now, you know, he's got this legacy of being a whistleblower. And it's not an easy thing to do because it, it affects a lot about you. It affects not only your family life, your professional life, but your friends and everything else. You just don't know how people are going to look at you. Today, I'm going to introduce you to Chip DeBlock. Chip like I said, 30 years Tampa, 30 years working crime that needs to be worked. And sometimes it sidelines you. Chip, welcome to the show. And thank you for sharing this story. We didn't even really plan on talking about whistleblowing today, but sure. I think it's one of those, those topics we need to talk about. Yeah, I tell you, 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 you brought home some memories there on the intro and you definitely find out who your friends are when you become a whistleblower. That is absolutely the truth. So. You know, brother, you know, I'm looking at 20 something years in law enforcement, 16 when I blew the whistle. And at that point, I had friends who were senior leaders. And it really, you know what, that that brought up a little memory right there with me, too. I had a really good friend. We used to work Jamaican dope. We used to work all sorts of shit. We'd spent so many hours doing surveillance in a van, getting to know each other. And I'm not going to name his name, but he dropped me like a ton of bricks as soon as because he was moving up the ladder. And I had this stink this alleged stink about me of you know blowing the whistle on a main agency and you know losing friends over that it, it's a true and i want to caveat this conversation what chip did and what i did we legally blew the whistle legally we're not you know we're not leaking information here to the media so chip i always got to say that brother so let's talk about you let's get that thirty thousand foot overview of you and then we'll jump into, you know, what happened. Well, um, you know, I fresh out of college, 21 years old, went to the University of South Florida and at 21 um, started a career in law enforcement with Tampa Police Department. So that was back in 1983, actually. Um, so I uh, did the cop thing a few years later. I was involved in some, you know, plain clothes, undercover work and stuff. And um, I eventually, uh, gosh, it took me uh Took me 12 years to get promoted to detective, uh, but finally, I uh, finally did that, and uh, I got I got thrown right into a uh, a really cool undercover operation where I had a storefront. Uh, I, it was set up by the FBI, and uh, for a year and a half, we did. If you remember back with uh, you know credit card factoring, the mm -hmm. uh, 
predicate crime was prostitution because we were um, doing, we had a um, bank account, all the houses of prostitution, the escort services is mostly what we were doing. They couldn't get regular bank accounts in order to do credit cards. So they factored credit cards through our business and we took 10% off the top. And uh, we did this for a year and a half. And then at the end of the, uh, at the end of the operation, we started busting everybody when they came in the turn and their slips to pick up their money. So that was a wild operation. And uh, then from there, um, you know, I was de- detective already. I went straight to start doing um, criminal intelligence work. And that really centered around organized crime, public corruption and adult entertainment. And really in Tampa, adult entertainment is really organized crime. It's uh, it's very um, ingrained in the city there. And, uh, and with a lot of people as, uh, as you'll hear in the story. So, well, you know, you know, Chip, I got to say like organized crime, when I think of organized crime, I always think the mob, you know, but I know what organized crime is. And I think mob, I think major narcotics organizations. Now, when you're thinking organized crime in like camp or something like that, you're thinking, when are you going to kind of explain how that operates there? Cause it's gotta yeah. be different than like Southwest border and, and big cities like New York and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But they rub elbows with each other, too. So there are connections, you know, whether it's the Traficanis or the Gambino crime families and stuff, you know, they're they've all got, you know, relations with each other. And a lot of these guys have business dealings, you know, with each other as well. Um, so um, yeah, a lot of the people that we were dealing with, um, you know, they were had ties with Atlanta and with Las Vegas. Good old Vegas. And, you know, yeah. talking about, you know, structuring money and money laundering, because whatever you have organized crime, you always have, you know, the laundering of money. Well, that's so it. Talk, yeah. Well, that, that makes it attractive for adult entertainment. And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, with adult entertainment, you know, every once in a while, you know, in law enforcement and in, in our circles, we hear of having an IRS agent sit in a parking lot with a counter, you know, counting, you doing the head count because yeah. you know, no one, that's where the, that's where you, it's a great opportunity to launder money. So yeah, the guys in New York, they bring the money down to Tampa and they say that, you know, maybe the Mons Venus or someone saying that they've got, um, 500 people walking through the front door and they're charging maybe a $10 cover. And so clubs that are working with organized crime and I'm saying, uh, Mons Venus is in fact, that's, that's run by Joe Redner and he, and he's really not organized crime. So Joe's Joe runs a, a legit ship down there, but, uh, uh, but the organized crime guys, they would inflate the numbers and they would clean the money, wash it through the business and end up giving it back to the guys up north, legitimize the money so they can, you know, declare it on taxes and buy things without getting, you know, uh, scrutinized by the government. And uh, no one was the wiser. So that was one of the uh, the favorite things, the most appealing things about adult entertainment in Tampa. Yeah, whenever there's a cash heavy business, especially like that, and that's why you're going to see ATMs all over. You're not going to go pay for lap dances and champagne rooms and everything. And just like you said, you inflate the books. So everybody out there, like when you wash money, I, I had to explain this to my 11 year old daughter the other day because I teach white collar crime, and she's like, "What is money laundering? Why do you why are you teaching these people about money laundering?" And I'm like, "Do you take it and you put it in the washing machine?" I'm like, "No." I'm like, yes, money is dirty. Believe me, it's dirty, but no. And then it's, it's all about taking that money and making it seem legit. So yes. And when that happens, you have a lot of different people in the puzzle. And it sounds like when you were working as organized crime, you were paying off a lot of different people within the community. Well, yeah. And, you know, the scary part is, is and especially in Tampa, you know, it's a tight, it's a tight knit community. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's just influx of, of uh, there's all this Spanish heritage, I guess, especially with, uh, you know, Cubans in Ybor City and 
So a lot of these guys grew up together and now all of a sudden they're in the government. So they're judges, they're attorneys, um, they're prosecutors, um, you know, they work for the city. So, um, and all these guys grew up together. And so, so yeah, so it's, it's difficult as I learned, you know, doing organized crime and public corruption in a, in a city like Tampa, because when you get one guy and he knows people or he grew up with people, it makes it really difficult um, to do the investigation. And uh, then it really depends on who's really got your back, you know, when you're in the middle of doing something like this. I like when you say got your back and, you know, because that's the thing that is the absolute thing right there is you never know. And I mentioned that little story about a friend before, but there was a lot of other things. When you take this step and you're seeing things that are going on and I want to backtrack, I want to say, like, when you're talking about public corruption, I worked at Southwest Border. I know a ton of people that work the Southwest border. You think Mexico, you think Mexico is so corrupt, but the same things are happening here. The same types of crime are happening here. A lot of it is, Hey, you know, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to move this money around here or let this person go or do this or do that. But it really, you're breaking the law. And, you know, it's like, whenever you see someone like you see, I always see these videos. You see like a, a commander or a sheriff's, uh, captain or whatever doing a thousand miles an hour on the highway and they get pulled over and they're like, do you know who I am? And it's like, it doesn't matter, man. So yeah, when you're working this stuff, I'm sure you're going to ping across a lot of public officials. Yeah. Well, I can tell you even doing the adult entertainment. Um, and I look there, you know, I grew up, you know, cr- Christian boy as long as I can remember went to church and stuff. So the guy least likely to work the strip clubs and stuff, they take a guy like me and they put me in charge of that, which probably was a good thing. But even doing the clubs, I got to a point when I was, um, and eventually I ended up getting a partner. Um, but I, I really limited our access to do stuff like that. Cause I didn't think it was healthy for the mind and, and, and it's really not. Um, so in doing the strip clubs and stuff, operations, you know, one day a month. I thought that was sufficient. And then doing other things where you used undercovers like CIs and stuff that would go into like lingerie shops, body scrub shops, and you have to get naked and stuff. And then we'd move in when they gave a signal. Um, and that's a that, that's an interesting story. But those kinds of operations, we could do those every day because it, it's not really, you know, bad exposure. Uh, but even going into the strip clubs and, you know, in Tampa, it's a city where if there's a liquor license or any kind of liquor involved, you cannot have any nudity whatsoever. That means, hmm. you know, no boobs and nothing, nothing below the waist. So um, you go into some of these strip clubs and some of them are topless. And you, after a while, you start to think, well, you know, topless isn't really so bad. At least they're not dancing nude. And so, yeah, it can happen. It can happen to anybody. Just, you know, you just, um, that shock value, you get so used to, to something being the way it is, you know, right or wrong. And then you just, it just starts, starts to become acceptable. Now, what ha- where, how did this, how did you blow the whistle on something? What, how did this all start? Well, uh, when I started uh, with Tampa and no one had done the organized crime thing involving like the adult entertainment businesses in about seven years. So they were just crazy. And, and in fact, the lingerie and body scrub shops, um, there were 79 adult use businesses, um, not all legal. Um, but there were 79 operating within the city limits of Tampa when I got started. And by the time I got done, I wasn't finished because I got yanked out of my job early, uh, but I got it down to 19. And it was all uh, you know about supply and demand back then. Um, so I started doing the adult entertainment, but I had problems with the state attorney's office prosecuting my cases. And I mean, severe problems. And so I, um, there were problems with the state attorney. 
and I ended up working with the federal government, um, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they were doing an investigation involving the state attorney for uh, Hillsborough County, the, the county that holds the city of Tampa, and he committed suicide in, in the middle of that investigation. Uh, but when I was, um, it reached the point to where the city had to hire me my own attorney because we simply couldn't get things done through the assistant state attorneys at the state attorney's oh, office. Let's, how did this all happen? That's what I want to know. You know, cause like me, I, you know, my whole thing was, it was pretty clear cut where, you know, I saw, I, you know, I witnessed something going on. I decided to, you know, go on online and, and do this. So you're trying to get these cases prosecuted. You're the, the lead agent our lead detective trying to get it prosecuted and it's just hitting a wall and you're like, Hey, something's gotta be wrong here. Oh yeah. I mean, look, there were, um, um, subpoenas that were going out and, uh, and I wasn't being advised that people were showing up for court. I would never find out unless I just tracked the case through the uh, state attorney's office computer. Um, there were people that they were null processing cases left and right. Um, there was a lot of things that were going on that were um, that really did not pass the smell test. Later on, I became aware of um, some compromising situations that some officials have put themselves in, which um, explained a lot of the ball dropping that was going on, if you know what I mean. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time. So it, it basically, um, with the city backing me, I started doing these investigations, even though some people didn't like it. But then when I started interning some of the people, um, I you know, that were involved and they started popping up. Um, then it started getting kind of ugly. And then there was pressure on me to stop my investigation. And uh, it kind of got ugly after that because the groups I was investigating, they started coming after me and uh, tried to get me fired from my job. And uh, it, it uh, ultimately, I did end up getting booted out of my unit. Um, but I, I like to say they knew that they had been in a fight. I ended up falling for whistleblower protection. And yeah, but I, you know, you, and you and I are the same way. We're like, yeah, I got, I got terminated for my detail, but it's, it's so matter of factly, but the emotional toll that it takes here's here. You are working these cases. You're trying to make, you're trying to clean up the city. You're trying to clean up the organized crime. And you know what? Here's a deal with when you're talking about the women behind the scenes and all these other places, there's a lot of things going on. I'm sure you must've seen some trafficking, uh, victimization and a lot of different things by them using this money and using these systems and being criminal networks, you must have seen something going on that just really didn't smell right outside of just the, the public corruption. Yeah. And that was before we came up with the term of human trafficking. Uh, but yeah, the Russians were already in place. Um, Asians um, in the, uh, you know, in the business, especially like the massage parlors and stuff and a lot of illegals. Um, so yeah, I mean, the girls, uh, the girls, uh, dancing and work in the clubs, you know, were foreign and they were being forced into that lifestyle. They weren't able to keep the money. Um, it, it, yeah, it, that was the early stages of, of that. And of course now we know where it's gone today. Yeah. Nobody realized back then that this was billion dollar industries. And you can imagine how much money is flowing in and out of those. And when you talk about these, what are they, scrub shops? Body, not, body scrub shops, yeah. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. I, well, maybe I'm just naive. Thought, well, I'll introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not going there. You're going to get me shot somewhere. Uh, but, hey, this episode brought to you by Faraday Defense. Head over to shopfaradaydefense.com. Why? Because they have everything to protect you from electronic signal hacking. Anything going to and from your electronic products, from cell phones, credit cards, anything out there, they have these little bags, little Faraday bags. 
that will stop that signature. They have everything, from, like I said, from credit card holders to laptop cases, to cell phone holders, all we have to tents. And one thing that was really cool I saw today was if you have a generator, they actually have a bag that can go over your generator. So in case there is some sort of electronic pulse or anything that could take out a generator, it could totally protect it from that. So please go to shopfaradaydefense.com. This episode also brought to you by Health to the Rescue. Every day, I pop two of these, two vitamin Ds. Why? Because there's not a lot of sun. It's winter. I need to boost my natural immunity. And one thing I do is I pop some vitamin D that is made in the USA. One thing great about Health to the Rescue as well is every bottle they sell, they give $5 to an organization that is fighting human trafficking. So to date, they've given over $6,000 the organizations that are fighting human trafficking. So head to healthtotherescue.com, pick up some vitamin D and boost that natural immunity. But yeah, so that had to be like a lot of like prostitution and trafficking and stuff like that. Oh, it all, they were just fronts for prostitution. So, I mean, even the lingerie shops, you know, uh, theoretically a girl would model lingerie and you would pay her to do that. But of course in Tampa, you know, anything that you could see through that was sheer enough, you know, that, you know, it had to be a regulated business. And of course these were not, you know, regulated businesses. They were just doing it off the cuff. And, uh, and then it's a su supply and demand issue, which really helped me out with the investigation part of it because, you know, it's at 79 shops or 79 places that do this, you know, the other shops have to do what the other guys aren't doing in order to make the money and stuff. So I was able to, um, you know, hit numerous shops at one time um, in a day and started closing them down. And, uh, and then it, when it got down to a manageable number, it wasn't all the prostitution stuff wasn't necessary for someone to make money. Uh, but they, that's essentially what they would do if they were just doing a hand job at, you know, shop across the street, then they would be doing at least a blow job, you know, with the other one. And then the ones down, town would be doing full service so you know it just went from there yeah i can imagine you must have really pissed some people off because that's a huge profit margin right there because you know i always tell people like when it when it comes to trafficking and drugs drugs you have to have a physical product and you have to keep supplying that physical product you got a kilo of coke you got to get that transported from south america through mexico or or, or across the uh, air lanes but then you got to get another key of coke when you have a woman, you could use them over and over and over again. And if you're closing these shops down, you're really hitting on the profits. And that profit, it, you know, I, I'd like to, I like to believe, you know, and I'm still ideological that most people are good. There's no evil out there. But the reality is there's a lot of evil out there. And some people are really shit. So when you're, when you're talking about a lot of that money flowing when you're talking about coming forward and say, we're going to prosecute these people, we're going to prosecute these people at the state level. Yeah. I can imagine you're going to hit some roadblocks. Yeah. I, um, the money, the money part is correct. Um, absolutely. I, I had a lot of people that were trying to get rid of me and my position. Um, I had people, you know, calling up and saying, you know, making up stories, things that I'd done, even playing tapes of people that were impersonating me, uh, you know, saying things to people that of course, you know, it wasn't me. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a constant battle, but I never anticipated, uh, Jason, that my own people in my own house that I would have to worry about um, about them, and that and that's and that's where it got ugly. And I'm sure you went through some of the same stuff, you know, I went through. I mean, I, I remember being under so much stress. I think you said you had 16 years on when you went through yours. I had 18 years on when I went through mine. So um, I was vested with the city, 
but I couldn't start getting, you know, I started at 21. So yeah. I, I couldn't start getting the paycheck until, until I was 46. So I had, I had 18 years on. So I, I needed to wait two more years. I needed the last two more years with 20 on before I could get a retire and get a paycheck. And so that wasn't really an option for me. And I didn't want to be forced out of my job, especially um, when I hadn't done anything wrong. So um, even though I, I kind of got, you know, you just, you kind of get pissed and you get angry. Yeah. Now I can handle stress a lot better back then than I could, you know, today, but heck, I was still, I'd go to the bathroom, fill the bowl up with blood. I mean, there was just all kinds of things. Is, your that, body, is that weird? Yeah. I, your body I, I, see, we're going to get graphic bodies. here, but when I was going through it, my, your, your bowels and everything else, your stress level is through the roof. Here you are, you dedicate your whole life. Like me, military college, everything was dedicated to me getting that position to be a federal agent to do the good things and Federal blah, blah, blah. We're going to put bad people in jail. And then all of a sudden when it comes crashing down, I'm still in a Fed. And I'm going to tell you right now, I will never get promoted. I will never go anywhere in my career except status quo. Um, I'm in a different agency now, but they know I'm a whistleblower. They found out I was a whistleblower later on. And I guarantee you, I will never go anywhere where I'm close to a flagpole or in a leadership position. Because it does, it's it's it absolutely nukes your career. I don't know one whistleblower out there who's still employed by the same agencies that have gone anywhere. They've never gone up. I know that. Um, and if you have gone up, please drop a comment below or comment somewhere because <laughs> I'd really like to have you on the show. But yeah, it nukes you, man, and it nukes your your ideology. Because, like you said, being in being in that position to do good and know the people that are in the next cubicle next to you at the office down the hall, the office up the road that aren't there for the right reason destroys something inside you. Yeah. You know, um, I, you know, if I ended my career without, I had arrest powers to the state, I was not allowed to use them by my department. So I had 18 years on and I uh, got kicked out of my unit. So I had to spend, remember I stayed 30 years. So yeah. I had to spend 12 years without using my arrest powers for the most part. And uh, it's hard to find places in a police department where you can work, where you're not expected to arrest people. And, and that was because the state attorney, the, the new state attorney that took over after the one I was investigating committed suicide, uh, the new state attorney uh, went on TV and said that I had no credibility. So, oh, yeah, he wasn't going to You can never testify a lot. Right. Of, so people out there, if you get um, I think in the Fed, we called the Giglio. If you get Giglio and you can't testify, you're no good. You know, you're no good. You can't, if you can't testify and you don't have credibility, you can't go in front and swear on oath that blah, 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 because it's going to open you up. The defense would be all over you. You're done. And anything you say is done. So I didn't realize you had to go 12 years with that. So yeah, yeah I, I could, like you said, man, it's just, if anybody out there has gotten promoted or has gotten anything from blowing the whistle, and I'm not going to discourage anybody from blowing the whistle. I guarantee you, Chip, right now, would say I would do it again, maybe yeah. a little bit different. And I would probably do it different too, because uh, the way they found out I was a whistleblower is my own damn fault. Really? Well, Never yeah. So what, how did you blow the whistle? Well, the, I was going to say that the good news about blowing the whistle is that I needed whistleblower protection at that point. They were gunning for my mm -hmm. job and, and they were gunning for my pension. And at one point even wrote a search warrant for my house because they were convinced I had stuff in my house um, that would, um, that I didn't tell them about. And uh, the judge fortunately was not willing to sign the warrant because let's face it for a warrant 
or search warrant to get in someone's house. It's not going to be a misdemeanor. It's going to have to be a felony. I don't know what they fabricated on that piece of paper, but at least the judge saw through it. Uh, but I did get protection. It allowed me to stay on, on the job, even though I wasn't able to make a rush and stuff. They didn't, they didn't get my pension and I was able to do some really good things after that happened. Um, but as far as the, uh, you know, the, the whistleblower, when I started doing all these investigations and people's heads started turning up and then I started finding out that a prosecutor um, that was hired to prosecute my cases, I started getting information that he was uh, compromising uh, not only information that I was giving him, uh, but also um, some of the cases. Um, I remember um, the informant, the person who became an informant for me, I remember getting in an argument with that individual and saying, this is absolutely is you know BS. It can't be true. But then I started verifying a lot of things that I was told. And I eventually substantiated all that information. And so I started moving on that. And that's right around the time uh, that I was told to drop the investigation because it would have brought embarrassment to the city for hiring a prosecutor to investigate, you know, my cases that had special prosecutorial powers to the state attorney's office and actually had an office over there. Uh, but they didn't want this to uh, come to light. So, um, I, uh, I backed off an official investigation. I still started, you know, connecting the dots and doing some stuff behind the scenes. And, uh, they were not happy about that, but there was, look, there was just so much stuff going on, um, stuff involving judges and assistant state attorneys, um, stuff that information was getting to me from, you know, confidential informants, um, stuff involving, you know, narcotics and fixing cases. I even made a controlled phone call, um, with attorneys who had fixed, um, fixed a specific case that I was tipped off about. And they, that recorded phone call that, you know, we call them controlled phone calls. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, you preface the tape with, you know, this is detective, you know, mm-hmm. check the block, this is the date, this is the time, this is who I'm calling. And, you know, you do all that stuff. Well, they, they did a criminal investigation against me uh, for making that controlled phone call. And the IA investigator, um, I don't know if he, well, look, I, I know he knows what the law said because he looked at the statute and then I told him, you know, I, you know, I told him what the statute was, but they still sent it to uh, the governor's office. The Hillsborough County State Attorney's Office recused themselves. And um, so it went up to the governor's office and the governor, uh, Jeb Bush, sent it down to the Manatee County, Manatee County Prosecutor's Office, which is, you know, somewhere close to Tampa. And they did a seven month investigation. It was a criminal investigation. And I eventually got cleared because I didn't do anything wrong, but I had to endure that. And, uh, and then, of course, the IA investigation lasted about a year and seven months. Now we have laws against that, um, but uh, there was nothing I could do. And the, the worst part, which you probably experienced, is I could not talk about the investigation because it was, quote, open. And that was a misdemeanor if I talked about an open internal affairs investigation. But information was being leaked from internal affairs. They had raided my office, taken all my files, all my notes. They wanted to know if I had anything at my house. I told them I did not. And um, they just wanted to get everything that I had. And I was convinced that it would never turn up again, that I would lose everything if they got everything. The violation. And that's the thing you're talking about right now. It's it's like a violation of you and your personal space and everything about you. And being in law enforcement and then being targeted by law enforcement, it must, you know, it really has to like, I'm going to say this. I have to say it's like a dad joke. Chip away at you. <laughs> it's really no serious. I I'm trying to add some levity to it. I mean, try to add some, you know, just lighten it up a little bit, but the truth is you dedicated your life to this profession and then to have these people investigate you and you're a target. 
like you said, the physical issues you've had, I can imagine you had some other stresses in your life or personal relationships. I know I did. I, you know, I was just numb for so long and just, and you get these spurts of anger and the physical attributes that happen to you. I just imagine, man, what, what was that like? Well, you know, I found, look, for lack of a better term, I'm going to use the word hate. I don't, I don't like to think that I go there often, but I, I was fueled by hate, but you know what? It's a great motivator. And when you go through something like that, you, you really, if you're going to stay in the fight, if you're not going to, you know, if you're not going to, you know, puss out, quit your job and just give it up, you know, which I was not, I just got angry. I got really pissed off and it, it fueled my fight. However, it's important, I think, to realize that when you reach that point in time when the fight's over, I mean, my whistleblower, after fighting it, 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 it really didn't go anywhere. I was not given, you know, a good enough um, option by a judge to keep it active. And, uh, and then I did a, a defamation of character lawsuit against the state attorney that ruined my career and stuff. And, of course, uh, um, I was told that I couldn't sue him. And I appealed, you know, these cases, you know, to the appellate court and stuff and, and still didn't go anywhere. So it reaches the point where you have to you know, you have to cut it off, but then you can't stay pissed forever. You know, you, it, it's contagious. People don't want to be around you and it really affects your outlook on life. So you've got to get over it. So, um, I, I, I will tell you that every time I see the chief that I filed the whistleblower lawsuit against and the state attorney that I filed the defamation of character lawsuit against, um, we hug each other when we see each other in public. Um, so yeah, it, it's, I've come a long way and, and I'm okay with that. It's not an act. Um, you got, you've got to, You've got to get over it. For me, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Mike, I'm thinking, I'm like, there's no way in hell. <laughs> I should say this. No fucking way in hell that I would, I would hug those sons of bitches. Cause you know what? They're still fucking with people. They're still doing their things. And you know, I, I did, I filed for the whistleblower protection. I, I worked with Senator Charles Grassley. We got a lot of things changed in policy and stuff like that, but the chain of command, the same chain of command that was back then, all nothing happened in their careers. Nothing. Well, my you chief, know. my chief that I that I thought I mean he was chief when the when I did the whistleblower thing. Um he was um he was led he was led by some people, um, a captain in charge of internal affairs and a in a in a bullheaded sergeant that were giving him some bad information. And now the state attorney, um that I filed the lawsuit against, he's not the one, of course, that killed himself. He's the one that inherited a corrupt office. But he still went on TV and said no credibility based off the information he was getting from people in his office. Still a wrong decision, a bonehead move on his part. It ruined my career, and and I wasn't lying about anything. So um, that's my look. If it was the original state attorney that committed suicide, or if it was the IA investigator um, that had all kinds of improprieties going on, that's not going to happen with those people <laughs> ever. I have to ask you. You know, I I said you probably would, but if you could go back and do it again, would you? Yeah. I, I like you, I would, there were some things I would do differently. Um, I, you know, I look, I think God put me in a place at a specific place in a time doing a specific job for a reason. I did a lot of good in that job. Um, I, you know, it reached the point where I couldn't do it anymore because there was just too much heat coming down from the state attorney's office on my, on my chief and, you know, I had people fighting for my job for me and it just reached the point to where, you know, it was just easier for them to let me go. And uh, that's unfortunate, but that's just, you know, that's just a fact of life. But yeah, I would do it again. I would change things. I'll tell you one thing that really saved my bacon and made a huge difference because of the nature of the work that I did. I kept notes on a daily basis on everything that I did. And I mean, 
I mean everything. So when they came up with accusations on things that I've been doing that happened like three years ago, three and a half years ago, guess what? I had notes on everything. When I turned over notes and I had names of, you know, one state attorney that was, you know, went to a lingerie shop and the owner of the lingerie shop, one of uh, my, a girl that ended up being one of my CIs filmed him coming in there and getting a blowjob from her. And then using that tape, I had information. They used that tape to extort him into, um, um, to not prosecute cases that I was sending their way. And then I found out that there were three other, or I'm sorry, two other videotapes, a total of three of those. Uh, I was working with the U S attorney's office that wanted to start, you know, kicking in doors and, and, and grabbing tapes where they were located at. I mean, it was just, it was just, you know, crazy. Heck the U S attorney that I was working with, the assistant U S attorney wanted to, um, he asked for my permission to raid internal affairs to take all the files it took out of my office. He wanted to go and seize those from internal affairs. And I had to beg him not to do that because my police chief was already pissed off at me enough based off of bad information he was getting from the investigators. So I begged him not to do that. I didn't think of my career. I mean, I was already toast. I didn't want to, I didn't want to make, make things any worse, you know? Uh, but, but taking the notes was one of the best things that I ever did. And uh, I remember when I turned those over, I remember the pucker factor um, that they gave, even when the media found out about what had happened. And when they asked, they wanted to interview me. I said, no, just read my notes. My notes came up missing. The city wouldn't even produce them for them. So, um, yeah, they wanted to hide, they wanted to hide that stuff. Uh, that is one advice I would give actually to everybody is timelines and notes. Whenever you try to, so if you're going to blow the, Hey, rule number one, if you're going to blow the rest of them, do your research, maintain your anonymity and what, what anonymity. Is that where it is? There we go, brother. See, I have to have you on here. I I don't know what (laughs) that is. But be be anonymous. Absolutely maintain your cover. Take notes and write a timeline. Because when you're trying to present your information to someone, whether that's a prosecutor, whether that's an office of special counsel, whether it's anybody, they want to know, one, what is the bottom line up front? Why do they care? That's the reality. Why do they care? Why should they care? And the next is when did it start and what's the chronology and write good notes. If you said what I used to do is I'd either text myself or I'd send myself emails and not from my work computer. I would email, I would take, I would take my personal um, email and I would send it to myself because then I have a timestamp. Right. And then and you, the didn't other, do, and you didn't do anything while you were working either. Did you? Nope. <laughs> nope. Don't because any believe me, whatever you're doing, it has to be your work hours are your work hours. Don't use your work computers to do this. Don't do that. Don't do anything like that. Look at it like they're going to try to prosecute you because exactly what happened to Chip is they're going to do it. They're going to come after you. And whether or not they feel like they're right about doing it or not, someone's going to direct them to do it. And it's when it comes down to an agency getting mud in the face. Are an individual, the agency is always going to circle the wagons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you uh, two things you said, um, you know, the first thing was the timeline. Um, man, you, when you have so much information, which is what Jason's talking about, you know, you when you take notes on a daily basis, you know, you're just going to have so much information. It's not going to make any sense to anyone. That timeline, that is a godsend. A short timeline, date, time, and a brief, very brief description of what happened. And only the notable things. Let me tell you, that is... That is crucial mm-hmm. when you're dealing with something that's going to uh, amass, you know, the the years on this. And um, 
and 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 the other stuff you said um you know hit home too you're right you're right on the money the other thing too is if you're if you plan on suing Chip and I both talked about our issues with our stomach and our bowels and your physical issues that happen because it is put that on your timeline track. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a one you're going to do it, but keep track of everything going on with you because for one, you're going to get stressed out Two, your body is going to change three. You're going to get angry. Your marital problems are going to happen. There's a lot of things that you didn't expect to happen, happen, but you don't realize they're happening at the time. But when you're coming to sue someone or sue uh, uh, your agency or whatever like that, you have to keep track of that stuff. It has to, if it doesn't affect you, it always comes down to why should I care? Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, we were talking about, you know, taking notes and stuff. I wanted to point out that a lot of agencies will consider that a work product. If you do anything on company hours, so you Mm -hmm. have to, even if you... (laughs) Even if it's even if it's like bending the truth a little bit, you did not do it on work hours. I'm telling you, they will. It'll be their mm-hmm. product. It'll be they'll own it, and you won't be able to to use it, get access to it, or whatever. So, but yeah, certainly don't use work computers and and and. But but even the time, use it on your own time when you're on. You know, document. Use recorder when you're on your way home in your car from work or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? That's exactly. Uh, the other thing too is also attorneys are expensive. The more information you have when you go to an attorney, the better. If they're gonna they're gonna charge you for per hour if they have to do the research. So also att- attorneys, you know, nice to have, but sometimes you could do this stuff on your own. Yeah, they're not and, they're not all created equal either, are they? No. And that's the thing is if you're gonna blow the whistle and you want to pro- get information out there and you want the right thing to happen and you don't plan on suing them for any losses or anything like that, you, that same timeline is perfect. Whoever, okay, on such and such date, I witnessed this, and this is why I'm blowing the whistle, and this is the result, and these are all the evidence. You're almost like building a case. So let's say you're not law enforcement. Think about getting into the guise of law enforcement. You're building a case. You have to put all the pieces of the puzzle together for someone to work on that information. The more, the better. So that's just my advice. Yeah, you know, I I had the opportunity to uh, work with an investigative reporter, and and the big you know network down here is Fox thirteen. So I was working with uh, with Fox when I was going through my thing, and they didn't really have. Now after I went through this, they definitely came up with some uh, policies against you know what you can say to the media and stuff. But let me tell you, I was on the front page news, I was on TV, I was in the newspapers and stuff. And man, let me tell you. I took it, but I was given it right back and I was, and I was given it thick, you know? So, um, yeah, these, uh, lawsuits that I filed front page news, uh, I was telling my story, um, on TV, I know at least three separate interviews just involving the whistleblower. And I think two involving the defamation case against the state attorney's office. So, um, when I say that's why, you know, when they knew they'd been in the fight, they had, they took a hit, they took a beating for it and it reached the point. Thank God. At least I felt like they couldn't screw with me anymore. I remember, uh, having my car, I didn't PM it, you know, and if you don't do preventive maintenance on your car, you get jammed up pretty easily. Well, they didn't even screw with me over that because I had already filed the whistleblower protection. I just think that they didn't want to do anything mm-hmm. against me that seemed like they were retaliating because uh, that whistleblower window, as you know, can open back up if there's yep. any retaliation. So, um, so it, there, there were some positives to it, uh, but you're right that just, it's a long process. It, yep. It's not going to be over in months. It's going to take years before this is all over. So. 
yeah, cover your bases. Uh, when you blow the whistle, you know, it, it does provide a limited sense of coverage and a limited actual coverage. So make sure you do that. Um, but it also changes your life. And next thing you know, you're, you're starting podcasts and, yeah. and everything else. So Chip and I planned on talking about his awesome show, the Law Enforcement Roundtable. I've been on it. I love it. It's fun. I'm going to go back on there if I'm invited. It's almost like a vampire <laughs> thing if I'm invited back through the door. But yeah, Chip's got a lot of things, a lot of really good things going on, a lot of different outlets. And he's definitely one you need to follow because his show is really good. He brings in attorneys, LEOs, uh, street cops, officers, everything you can imagine. And they break down cases. Uh, it's really cool. I enjoy it. And it's, it's something you need to watch out for and you need to subscribe to as well. Thanks, Jason. Yep. LeoRoundtable.com for you people that want to go to the website or just uh, Leo Roundtable on YouTube or Facebook. Well, Chip, I appreciate your story, man. I'd like to definitely have you back on the show, uh, whether as the primary guest or as a co-host, because I love having other people in here talking and jamming with other people. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you opening up about this. I know it's kind of opening up wounds, so I'd really, you know, Take an ice deep breath tonight and, uh, it, you know, just in, thank you for sharing, brother. And anybody out there, if you are thinking about blowing the whistle, do it legally and do it right. Hey, Jason, if there's one more thing I can say, and I, I guarantee you, you and I haven't talked about this, but I guarantee that you feel the same way. The people that are whistleblowers, in my experience, they they do it because they don't want it to happen to somebody else. Their motivation is typically not money. Um, they take their losses, you know, like a man, but they don't, they, there's been an injustice done and they want to make sure that it doesn't happen to somebody else. And they're willing to go out in that limb typically for that reason alone. Absolutely. That is it. I don't know anybody's made any money off blowing a whistle <laughs> unless it's, oh, you know, I shouldn't say that the corporate whistleblowers, the corporate whistleblowers, yeah. but government whistleblowers. Now nah, you're, you're out of luck. Chip, I appreciate coming on the show, man. Appreciate everything. Thank you.